Hello, I'm Paul Z. Jackson. I'm the president of the Applied Improvisation Network, and this is one of the AIN podcasts. And I'm sitting in a jail cell with Pablo Suarez. Good morning, Pablo. Good morning. Thanks for having this. How come we are sitting here in a jail cell in the middle of Austin, Texas? The good news is that we're here by choice. Yes. Uh, The Applied Improvisation Network has managed to secure a former courthouse for its annual global conference. And in this courthouse, there's phenomenal meeting facilities, spaces very conducive for gameplay and exploration. And there's also cells. So we want to step outside of our comfort zone and sit in a cell to have a conversation. And on the door, it says, do not shut the door. The door will lock. (laughs) So we're leaving the door open so we can leave when the podcast is over. And it's it's not a bad thing that we're in a jail cell because this connects in maybe some interesting ways with Pablo's work. So what do you do? Uh, I used to be a researcher on climate and disasters. And you can think of a disaster as a circumstance that forces you into something you don't want. Just like a jail traps you into something that is conceived as unpleasant, where you have limited choice. Most disasters that have something to do with climate, too much rain, too little rain, too much wind, extreme temperatures, diseases like malaria, dengue, all of those things, we, from the scientific point of view, can see them coming before they hit. So we could run away Mm. before we get put into jail. How do we see them coming? What, what is the scientific information and how does it present itself? The atmospheric science has been able to observe, just like communities have been able to observe, that before the disaster happens, nature sends you some signals. The signal can be a gigantic dark cloud in the horizon, mm-hmm. which means big rain is coming. It can be behavior of animals. Uh, which sometimes they can detect changes in, for example, atmospheric pressure and they seek shelter. It can be ants in the uh, in their homes underground leaving because the groundwater is rising and that precedes a flood in Mozambique. But with science, now we can see more with more analytical rigor. So we have satellite images that show us where the hurricane is and where it's going when it is, you know, 500 kilometers away. And how much time does that give, uh, typically? W- We now have the ability to provide very good predictions, very good forecasts of where a hurricane is likely to make landfall with uh, 36 hours lead time, a day and a half. We even have up to five days to say within a swath of 200, 300 kilometers uh, where it may hit. So if you're in the Caribbean, you don't know if we will hit your island or your neighboring island, but you know you better be prepared. You know that there may be very strong winds, extreme rain, coastal uh, storm surge, the sea actually going higher because of waves hitting you. Well, that sounds like really good news. And I guess everyone now is very prepared for disasters and we're ready for them. That's what we wish. It turns out that uh, globally, across cultures... And across hazards, so hurricanes and flooding and droughts, even though science has the ability to anticipate what may go wrong, read the signals of nature and anticipate where trouble is headed, 
the way that information is produced, it's produced by scientists who focus on analytical rigor. Mm. Therefore, what they produce is not exactly meant to be easily understood. Even in those cases where the forecast is communicated with layman language and some level of clarity, there is a tendency among populations, among elected officials, among humanitarian workers, among donors, to just wait and see and hope it doesn't happen. I heard a story yesterday that a mayor in a village in the Philippines before uh, the Hurricane Haiwan was so blasé and unconcerned he posed just wearing a, a protective helmet and that that signaled to people that they they needn't worry. And of course, if you are overconfident about your ability to deal with a coming threat, because you're macho, because you're the boss, whatever, you may think that you're smart by acting out a, it's not going to affect me, and let everyone know that I'm not evacuating like others want me to. Mm. But it turns out that when uh, two meters of water come your way, and smack you, it's very unlikely that the helmet will help. In the case of the Philippines, uh, thousands of people died, in part because not everyone did what could be done to prepare, and in part because once the strong gets so strong as that super typhoon got, you just don't have the elements to deal with it unless you invest well ahead of time in building a strong shelter, in building... Um, a good evacuation plan that can take you to a safe place. Mm-hmm. So my team, which is the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Center, what we do is to help the humanitarian sector, to help elected officials, to help communities, to help donors, to understand and to address the humanitarian consequences that could come from extreme events or from climate change. And we need to think along uh, all sorts of lead times, a wide set of time windows from minutes before it hits to hours or days before it hits to the season that may look particularly dangerous all the way to decades and climate change. Uh, you said you used to be a researcher and now you're working with this Red, Cl- Red Crescent, Red Cross Red Crescent climate team. Uh, what was the transition for you? Um, I used to be a math geek in uh-huh. Argentina where I grew up. Uh, I became uh, interested in learning more and uh, basically following opportunity. I became a doctoral student researching the potential impacts of changing climate in Boston. So it turns out that roads can get flooded if it rains like hell or if the sea level rises. Mm. And uh, I started investigating and then another opportunity came and I found myself going to Zimbabwe to rural Southern Africa, helping subsistence farmers understand what science can tell about the coming rains and whether they can change their practices. Mm. Um, In our research, we found with Professor Tony Pat, who was a very good improviser, I now can tell. um, In our research, we found that the farmers who were on the edge of survival because they're so poor, those who had access to information about likely rainfall and used it, they improved their harvest by 18% on average. Mm. That's the difference between not enough to eat and enough to eat, or the difference between just enough to eat or enough to make a surplus to make some money to buy 
shoes for your children to pay so for what, school what, fees. What were they doing that was different that enabled them to be that little bit more successful? One of the most important differences, and we're talking of seasonal rainfall forecasts, when unusual things happen with the temperature of the oceans and El Nino and other things, which are too long to explain now. But basically, we know that there's there can be more risk of bad rains or more opportunity for good rains coming. With that information, farmers can do several things. The most important one is what crop to plant. Some uh, varieties of corn, of maize, are more resistant to drought than others. So if you expect drier conditions, you get the drought-resistant variety. If it's likely to get very dry, you may abandon crop and plant something like cassava or sorghum that does even better. So based on immediate evidence and a foundation of knowledge that gives them the context, they'll make a different choice that has different consequences. Exactly. Okay. And this can extend to financial practices, whether or not to invest in buying fertilizer, which only pays off if it rains, mm. right? Uh, all the way to uh, how they manage their land, when to till the soil, and so on. Yes. Now, the disasters that are occurring seem to be more common and more severe. And if that's the case, it's really irrelevant whether people are debating human contribution to climate change. We in the humanitarian sector are fully aware that the science by now is completely irrefutable. What humans are doing by extracting from the guts of the earth all this coal and oil and so on, we're burning stuff, and in burning that stuff we're changing the atmosphere. And as a result, the planet is changing. The climate is changing. That is very clear. Some people don't want to accept it, but it's happening. Not only science says so, but also I have worked in 65 countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, Caribbean. Everyone says the same story. Things are changing. Uh, it's getting hotter when it gets hot. Extreme events that have never happened before are happening. The timing of the seasons is completely out of whack. So it used to start raining this time of year, but now it's some other time of year, or it changes, or there's things that, uh, you know, hailstorms in a place that doesn't even have a word for hail. Knowing that the climate is changing, there's two things that can be done. One is to address the causes. And there's a lot of people, those who have seen the Al Gore movie may remember, there's things you can do from changing your light bulb to being more energy efficient. In the humanitarian sector, in my team, what we do is to help communities, elected officials, uh, um, authorities, donors, to understand what can we do to deal with the consequences of a crazier climate. And that is focused on the preparedness for that, being and, ready. Exactly. And it's not only being more able to understand a short-term forecast of the hurricane, of the flooding, of the forest fire, but it's also making those long-term decisions that can help reduce your risk so you're not so vulnerable when it happens. If you can build a home in the floodplain where it's cheap or further up uh, higher ground where it's maybe not so cheap but it's safer when it floods, that's a good choice. You could build on stilts. You could uh, change the building materials. You could uh, manage forests differently. At the municipal level, you could manage ecosystems better. If you have a wetlands, Guess what? The wetlands is like a sponge. It helps your rivers 
absorb too much water before it becomes a big flood. Mm -hmm. If you de destroy the wetlands to develop uh, real estate, well, someone downstream will be in trouble later. Mm. It sounds like amazing, really interesting work. Uh, what are you doing at an applied improvisation conference? I have been trying to help people in very different spheres of humanity, from the illiterate farmer in Ethiopia to senior uh, colleagues at the White House, to understand what science can tell us, to listen mm. to the signals. Mm. It's difficult because it can be perceived as boring. Mm -hmm. So usually when I stood up in front of a, a group and explained what we know, people would begin to yawn. <laughs> because they have too much going on, they have a lot of emails that they have to respond, they don't think they care about science, and so I was not engaging them. I had the fortune of meeting some of your colleagues, Belina Raffi, the Finnish crowd, and so on, who gave me phenomenal feedback on how my sessions could be enriched, make them more engaging, more participatory, more serious and fun, by borrowing techniques from the applied improvisation universe. So things that uh, jazz musicians, things that people who deal with uh, drama and stage, they know how to be comfortable and connected in the face of the unknown. Mm. And that's where we are now. That, that, that seems to apply both with an audience immediately and the face of the unknown of what the climate is going to present us with. Exactly. So one of the things that uh, are I'm so grateful to the Applied Improv Network, um, the ability to prepare for the unknown. Yes. We tend, and this is something that I believe there is a, a common misconception in what people think improvisation is. Mm. People tend to think that improvisation means you're not prepared, you just go and do what you can. And some people are better than others. Well, it turns out that improvisation is to prepare yourself mm. to dealing with surprise. Yes. Be ready for things by embracing uncertainty as a condition that we're always going to face. So dealing with that with confidence and as a first choice. It's not just for when things go wrong. It's a choice we can take into any aspect of life. And one of the important uh, surprises for me was the relevance the importance that this community gives to the act of listening, uh -huh. of attentively paying attention to the signals, mm -hmm. and not only to the signals of what is being said by partners on stage or by a musician who's playing some odd tune, but also to the context. What are the elements that are there? What are the appetites that could be satisfied by some action? What are the threats that are there? What are the objects that could be taken to use? Yes. Uh, another way of looking at improvisation is making use of what is available to you. And sometimes we don't have everything we would like to be available to us, whether that's information, material resources, funds, whatever. But there we are. That's the way it is. What do we do with what we've got? And in that sense, for those who are listening to this uh, podcast who actually come not from applied improv, but from professional work, be it humanitarian or otherwise, 
I was once running a session in Bangladesh at an event called Community-Based Adaptation to Climate Change. There were maybe 400 people in the room. I was told there would be less than 60. So I already, and I was going to do a participatory game where people receive information, make decisions, there will be consequences. So I rapidly adapted. Thankfully, because of the skills I acquired from the Applied Improv Network, I rapidly adapted the the activity I have in mind to a new context with many more people, without tables, in rows, and so on. Five minutes into the activity, electricity goes out. And I have 400 people in the dark, without audio system. The normal reaction to that, the one that I think I would have experienced if it had happened before, would have been either silence, or letting panic happen, or just being the victim of discomfort. What I did was to listen to the reality of no electricity and people confused. Mm -hmm. I started speaking out loudly saying, it's natural that electricity goes out and we can expect more of these things when there's more storms and more disasters. And like in the real world, we have no choice but to keep using our time the best we can. So here's what we're going to do. And as I was saying those things, a fraction of my brain was thinking, how can I adapt the activity so we can play in the dark? And I proposed something that was embraced, was understood, and we kept going. And then, thank goodness, electricity returned and we could do more of what we wanted. That moment, that gem of an opportunity where people saw that instead of light goes out, there's no electricity and we're now all screwed they they heard their own voices. They started having conversations with their neighbors in a facilitative activity that was created on the spot mm. because of the surprising offer of yes. uh, electrical supply in Bangladesh. Wow. I'd like to trace with you a particular activity that is dear to us both, because <laughs> this was what first connected us when we did something together. Um, I'm talking about a game I taught you, but I originally played with my children in a car when we had uh, time on a journey and made up this game of Snap, but we had no cards. So you play Snap with imaginary cards and you set a category, which might be animals, and if you say the same animal at the same time, you win the imaginary pile of cards and you play again. And I use games in many circumstances with organisations, leadership and teams. And I realised this would be an interesting game for people to play and I've used it to start conference sessions and so forth. And where did you first experience this My game? My first experience of the game was in the Berlin uh, conference of Applied Improv Network when you facilitated it. That was one year ago. It was a, the plenary session at the it beginning, was the wasn't it? very early plenary session. Okay, yes. so what struck you when we played that game and what have you done with it since? Um, it was remarkable how in a very short time two things happened. One was that my brain got phenomenally active. There was an acceleration of my brain's capabilities. Mm-hmm. I had to think fast of names of animals. I had to connect with my partner, a person I have never seen in my life, so that we both spoke the word at the same time, which is what the game requires. And I have to listen to what my partner was saying to see whether there was a snap or not, a coincidence or not. 
A magical moment was when, several seconds into the game, I realized that I was saying lion, giraffe, zebra, and my partner was saying dog, cat, mouse. We were never going to snap. <laughs> so it took a while to listen and notice that the other person was in a completely different sphere. And that's exactly what happens in my professional work. Two people come together, but they come from different worlds. They speak different things, and it takes them a while to notice that they are not going to snap, that they're not going to coincide. Um, when we adapted that game to make it first about numbers, so one, four, seven, it's mm -hmm. easy. Then about animals, lion, zebra, dog. And then about the concept that matters, the concept that brings people together to their event. For so example, climate change. We're, pl we're playing this one round at a time. So the first round's a really easy one where there's just 10 numbers and you're likely to get some snaps and you don't have to think because you know what the numbers are from 1 to 10. Then it progresses up a gear to animals where you have to be a little bit more thoughtful and creative and you might snap or you might be in domestic animals against wild animals. And then you ask people to use the words that are relevant to the topic. So that might be climate change, might be leadership, might be customer service. And you hear the words that are on people's minds because they're expressing them with each other. Still in this game. Very quick, half a minute to a minute per round. And what we're doing now is to... I have been using this game like you used it uh, with a twist, which is to ask people after their third round where they have to come up with words related to the event and they clog up, they realize they don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. We invite them to write down the words. They form a trio and they have to write four terms. And then those cards give us a sense as organizers of what people are thinking about when they show up. And then we play the game again at the end of the event. And we can document, we can observe how people have changed their thinking. By the absorption of new vocabulary, new terms. And you can make this very visible by forming word clouds or wordles so people can see the density of the word populations. So um, right now we are working with uh, students at the Game Lab at MIT. Uh, they are creating a digital platform that can help us in real time create that word cloud, mm. which, if all goes well, uh, we are going to deploy on Saturday, December 6th at the UN Climate Conference. My team is hosting the Development and Climate Days with partners, and we're going to open the event with the game of Snap, where we will have diplomats, we'll have donors, we'll have uh, leadership from NGOs, we'll have academics, and they will be playing together learning what they think mm. and what others think. Yes. So you are clearly an applied improviser. This is what applied improvisers do, is they take something and adapt and use it to fit their contexts. Um, how else has coming to these conferences and hanging out with other applied improvisers influenced you? Well, one meets here people that have a remarkable range of skills. Uh, it's not just the, the skills from applied improv, but there's also people from all walks of life. There's uh, 
academics who investigate creativity as an object of study, like others study neuroscience. Mm -hmm. There's people who are very good with their organizational behavior and transitions. Mm -hmm. There's people who care deeply about uh, humanitarian work. There's people who are phenomenally talented facilitators or designers of meetings. Um, those things are all extremely, extremely valuable. I also am learning a lot about the ideas that inform applied improvisation and how they are relevant to my work. For example, for a year I've been hearing improvisers talk about status mm. and how that is important for stage performance and so on. And I was never paying much attention. I thought it was irrelevant to my work. But today uh, I was conversing with Todd, one of our, the participants here, and he helped me realize the extent to which difference in status at the events that I facilitate or that my team convince is a large reason why we don't get uh, what we want. People spend a lot of their brain power not doing what has to be done, but trying to protect their hierarchical position or trying to gain status. So if we could design events where status is no longer a barrier to interaction, but rather uh, an acknowledged fact, if you have a minister uh, national level in the same room as the head of a local farmers cooperative, it's understandable that the minister thinks of himself as someone with higher status. But can we create an environment where they find and they want to find how they can work together? Yes. That can be done through the tools yes. that I'm learning here. So we can create conditions in which better conversations can happen exactly. that lead to more productive interactions. What about the community of practice that's beginning to happen that, that covers applying improvisation in humanitarian world? You're a key figure in that and your presence here is part of that. Where do you see that going? How might that evolve and develop? There are uh, many things to share on this front. First of all, Gabe Mercado from the Philippines, uh, who is now a member of the board of uh, AIN, uh, has been very keen on offering spaces for members of this community to engage, to try to do things. And uh, yesterday in our group conversation, we came up with three main ways in which this interaction can grow and help others. One is in the realm of ideas. What are the ideas that are already existing or latent in this community of practitioners that can help the humanitarian sector do more with what we have, be it limited time, limited skills, uh, limited money, limited resources. Mm -hmm. So those ideas, like the game Snap, uh, can really help us do more. It can be a very simple idea that taken on has a profound effect. Exactly. So uh, one very tangible example of this, uh, how ideas can help, uh, in a month we're going to have a an artistic experimental performance where people from Lima, Peru, including Red Cross volunteers, as well as shantytown dwellers, extremely poor people, are going to collect plastic bags, cut them, uh, tape them together to form a very large membrane that will become a hot air balloon. And that balloon will be lifting, not by burning flame, but with solar energy. Mm -hmm. The magic of seeing that balloon lift with the power of the sun, and it's a balloon that was made by people and with contributions from the diplomats that go to the UN Climate Conference, that moment will be magic. 
but it will be preceded by many somewhat dull moments. You have to cut a lot of plastic, you have to tape a lot of it, and you have to wait an hour and a half for the balloon to lift. Can we create playful activities inspired or designed by applied improvisers that not only help people engage and have fun, but also reflect about the nature of their problems and the solutions we confront? Which is relatively straightforward. Some good games that work with large numbers, that's the sort of thing we do, and it connects to the content or the topic that you have people concerned about and thinking about. Exactly. Uh, the next strand? So, um, a, a, a next strand, not only ideas, but also time. We can have people from this community spending time in engaging with humanitarian work. Maybe they can go to their municipal uh, annual meeting on disaster preparedness, be it about uh, earthquakes or, uh, I don't know, terrorist attacks or... Uh, forest fires or whatever, so that the practitioners of applied improvisation can learn about what we do in the field of disaster management. And of course, there's the area of money, which can always help as an amplifier. From my perspective, uh, I, of course, celebrate anyone who wants to give money to good causes and when one of many possible causes, but I would prefer to see the Applied Improvisation Network find ways to generate financial resources that can help your own teams do stuff with us, pay for plane tickets, give us materials, books, make a video, create training uh, materials, including booklets, web pages, etc., uh, videos, to help others facilitate the things that you already know how to facilitate. Um, one idea that emerged that I thought was very good was for many of the practitioners here who offer their services to corporations, to businesses, to for-profit entities. The applied improviser could say to the potential employer, to the potential client, hello, Mr. Client, if you want that thing I can give you, you have two choices. Choice one, uh, the cheapest, $1,000. You can also take the premium one for corporate social responsibility, where you pay, I don't know, 100, 500 euros more. And with that money, we're going to help the humanitarian sector do the same things that we're giving you, you can pay for it, they can't. Can you help us help others? Mm. I think this can phenomenally help the humanitarian sector if AIN colleagues can have a plane ticket to go or produce a book or print booklets and so on. Uh, while also I think it could be beneficial to your network by showing to your clients that you have a, a larger thinking and a, and a generous intention to help. Great. Uh, Pablo Suarez, thank you very much. Let's get out of this jail cell before they shut the doors <laughs> and throw away the keys. Thank you.